Hello, listeners. Thank you for joining us for the Real Perspectives podcast. We hope you'll enjoy this episode and share it with your colleagues and friends because it has some nugget of information that may pertain to your daily work. There are more episodes in our library, too, so if you like them or have any thoughts, ideas, or suggestions, please don't hesitate to reach out. Thanks again. Welcome to the Real Perspectives podcast, where we bring you insights from the top minds in commercial real estate. I am your host, co-founder and publisher, Vladimir Bosanets. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Juan Bueno, the principal and U.S. president of Avis & Young. With over two decades of experience in a number of industries before joining the firm, Juan brings a unique perspective to the table with a deep understanding of how data and technology can transform how we achieve business goals for clients. Juan's disciplined planning and execution have been key to the success of Avis and & Young, and he has been instrumental in attracting and developing top talent at all levels of the organization. In this interview, we'll dive into his leadership philosophy and learn how he has created a culture of innovation and growth at Avis & Young. Join us as we explore the future of real estate and how technology will play a critical role in driving business success. Welcome to the podcast, Juan. Juan, good morning or good afternoon. How are you? Vlad, how are you? Pleasure to be uh, here. Excellent. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for joining us. Really, really good to see you. Um, um, Juan, you know, as a way of introduction, do you mind telling us a little bit about, you know, you kind of uh, how you got to Avis and Young and kind of a little bit of a, you know, background in terms of, uh, uh, you know, uh, how you got to where you got to? Absolutely. Pleasure. So, again, Juan Bueno was born and raised. I'll start way back. I born and raised in Colombia. That's where you get the accent. Get used to that one not going away. Uh, came to the U.S., as a consultant working in Philly for a few years, then actually was a peer of yours at Kellogg, spent two years there, and then in 2005 came here to Atlanta and joined McKinsey and Company, where <clears throat> after 12 years, or I was there 12 years, I became a partner, uh, and I led what we call for North America go-to-market practice. So I was truly a, a commercial-oriented guy, business-to-business -business professional, helping our clients across different industries sell more, more expensive, and get better EBITDA, focusing primarily, Vlad, on distribution. And for that was uh, any client that would have more than 400 trucks. Through that exercise, I became very close uh, to Home Depot. And I got a call from them, staying obviously large, large company here in Atlanta, didn't require a lot of the changes, and they were doing a lot of what I was helping clients do. So I, I made a career switch from being a consultant, being an influencer, being a, I would say, leading without authority to actually going and building and driving something, which is what, what drives me. Uh, went to Depot and spent six years there, and I led the sales side of what we call Home Depot Pro. So not glad where you and your family or mine would go on a weekend. So I had nothing to do with the stores. It was truly a wholesale distribution business trying to sell product that the stores would otherwise not sell. Very steady cash flow, rain or shine. There's a contractor out there that needs Home Depot product. We had, call it 900 trucks, 60 or so distribution centers with the mission again of, of selling into that pro that we didn't want in the stores because of complexity, they didn't see their needs satisfied by the store. I can get into details of which service lines I, I led. I had five 
five of them, one of which was institutions. And so this okay. is stadiums, hospitals, buildings like the one I'm in today, class A buildings owned by some of my competitors today, where I was hoping to put product in their back room so that when a super of a building gets a call from a tenant saying, hey, I'm in a office 305 and there's a leaky faucet or there's a, a need for a linear light bulb, they don't go to a store, which could be mine or my competitors in blue. They would actually call downstairs. I would have a room full of product. That super goes downstairs, puts a linear light bulb, changes the faucet, and that's Home Depot product, right? So that was, that was the mission. Through that exercise, I became close to CEOs and sales leads of my competitors. And I became very close to a gentleman who's our CEO, Mark Rose who sold a mission or a vision to me around how this industry is stagnant around technology, how we've been late adapters of internet, of apps, of tools, and how there has to be a significant change around those topics to create true value add in the industry. So I came here with the objective candidly of, of changing an industry, changing the way we interact with clients, but I will tell you, Vlad, that if I reflect on, on why I'm here, even though the connection came through Home Depot, and I'll be transparent, I'm not a commercial real estate guy. I, I go deep in, in sales. I'm a sales leader. I'm a change leader who understands the, the impact and benefits of technology. I think even though the connection was through Depot, I'm truly here because of the McKinsey background, which I would say is all around serving clients in a wholesome way. So. As an example, at McKinsey, if someone at Home Depot wanted to have a conversation with me when I was a partner around marketing and sales, I could go very deep on that conversation, right? That sure. I comfortable. That was my topic of expertise. And McKinsey would say, you have to know something about something. That was my topic. But if Black came to me and said, hey, Juan, I really want to understand your take on supply chain for a distribution or retail, I'd say, Black, you know what? Let me bring... Sandra from our Houston office, she's truly the expert, will be here next week. Right. I think that's where we want to take this company. I want to serve clients in a wholesome way. I want to put all the offering together so that I become, or we become, as Edison Young, an advisor. It's yeah. less about the transaction. It's more of the consultative nature of our engagement. And I think those that will win are those that understand how to embed commercial real estate into the value chain of, of their business and not about the transaction. If you think about it at Depot, <laughs> I, I, I joke, but I said, look, as, as a leader in pro, I truly couldn't care less about where the building was located. One of those 60 some DCs that I mentioned, but I the discussion that I would have with a commercial real estate partner would be, listen, because of the competitive nature that's out there with uh, Amazon and the others, they're forcing me to be next day. Right. This is not a store need, right? Vlad, if you buy a grill, you don't care if it shows Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, as long as it's there for the game on Sunday. We, we have been conditioned to expect that in every industry these days, right? <laughs> but so the point is, right. I'm the only one fighting for next day, right? So my discussion right. with commercial real estate was, guys, I don't care where you put it. Help me satisfy a strategy that allows me to cover 90% of the U.S. population next day. Right. That's the way I want our sales team to behave. And that's why I'm yeah. we're changing yeah. an industry with data with insights. 
it would be worthwhile also just taking a quick step back one and you know telling us you know how uh, you know deep um, Avis and Young has expanded across the United States, right? I mean, it's a it's a Canadian based brokerage firm, or that at least that's where its roots were. But uh, just for the sake of our audience, give us a little bit of an overview of kind of you know where the offices are and sort of where the company plays in terms of uh, the industry, but also geography across across the U.S. Well, thank you for allowing me to build on that on that history. So yes, you're right. We are a Canadian-based firm. I would say privately owned, and we can get into the advantages of that. In the U.S., we've grown by the strategy of planting flags in different cities. We now have 50 plus uh, offices across the U.S. That strategy uh, has paid off, and we're now in the in the mindset of expanding service lines. We are traditionally known as a brokerage firm. That's long in the past. We now have a very solid consulting uh, unit all around professional services. We have valuation, we have project management, we have property management. So again, go back to the, the discussion we we're having before. This has to be all around building all the adjacencies around being a full service commercial real estate firm. That's what we're all about. And so we're, we're, we're hoping to move more of our revenue from those transactions to more consultative. And therefore, I need to be able to provide people, like I said before, in the example, Home Depot, not only with that ability to have brokers transaction, but, but way more. You mentioned uh, the nature of the ownership of the firm. You guys are private. I would argue, I, I think most of the big brokerage firms in the U.S. are pub public firms. Um, tell us about that, you know, differentiation. I mean, I can I can guess what what it is, but but I would like to sort of hear it from you as well. You know, why does that make you guys stand out, and does that help you do business better, faster? Um, what are what are the what are the obvious advantages? So uh, look, I'll tell you, it's it's absolutely one hundred percent one source of differentiation. Not only as I talk to people that want to come join us, but also as we think about how we make investments, right? So. We are around 700 partners around around the world, which collectively we make all the big investment decisions. So I, I compare where I am today to my seven years or six years at Depot, where I was candidly solving for a short-term objective, right? Here, uh, let's talk about the downturn that we're facing, right? We're, we're in one right now. It's The market is challenging for many aspects. I am still able to make long-term long investments because my horizon is not next quarter. And that's absolutely key. It helps tremendously culturally, but it also helps me to stay committed to that true north of what is it that I'm building. And if I say to you that, look, whoever's whoever's going to win is that company that actually provides better insights, better data, I cannot afford to stop those investments in technology, in, in being client-centric, on continuing to build the service lines uh, in a downturn, right? So. It's absolutely key. We talk about it a ton. We, as you noted, are actually the largest privately held full service commercial real estate company out there. Yeah. And from an operational side, I think that makes perfect sense. What about from the kind of, you know, human and cultural side? How do you think that's helped you guys, you know, stay apart from the rest of the world? Look, it's it's tremendous. So the culture, we are we are accountable to each other. So I I kind of joke, but not really. We have a meeting of all principals once a year. We all get together in primarily in Toronto. And if the 
partnership says, one, we don't want you as our U.S. president. That's that's it. The same happens with our CEO. So there's a absolute win on the governance side, and it helps us keep each other accountable. Also, I mean, you have to recognize that a, a big bunch of our revenue is attributed to independent contractors, brokers that earn a, a commission. But the fact that they are also principals in Avis and Young helps them want to collaborate with others. So when I tell you, Vlad, I'm really aspiring to get to a place where a broker is having a transaction, he and she is in front of a client, and there is an opportunity for us not only to sell the asset, but also to maybe retain it as a client because I want to be the project ma- the, the project management for TI or manage a property. There is actually a natural incentive for that broker to have that discussion because, again, by expanding the service lines and our involvement with that client, the partnership grows and their quote-unquote stock price with the Navy and Young grows. So it, it's a truly mutually beneficial model where, yes, I'm an independent contractor. I do get my commission like I would get in any, any other shop, but I'm actually building something for the greater partnership. So it, it, it helps from the culture, and that's where all our incentives are fully, fully aligned. Yeah. Um, COVID-19 has been a great disruptor for all industries, and I don't necessarily want to, you know, harp on COVID-19 as a, as a you know, driving force of, of you know, change, but you um, insinuated also that, you know, coming from outside of the industry, you have a very different perspective. I, I imagine coming from, you know, you know, McKinsey, you're 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 used to seeing you know companies move fast and um, really innovate in terms of both uh, operational proficiency and you know people and and all this other stuff, right? Um, as you enter the commercial real estate space, which is not known for innovation, <laughs> let's sort of throw that out there, right? Uh, tell us a little bit about sort of you know how you know what are some of the obvious things. Um, things you're going to be focusing on, things that you want to work on um, as much as you can share, obviously, right? Um, in terms of how this is going to transform Avis and Young and hopefully, you know, make a dent in, in how the industry works as well. Yeah, no. So great question. And I will definitely link it to to COVID because I think one of the things that we, that we did was we doubled down on the technology investments. Yes, there was some slowness, there were some vacancies and we were seeing it today. But we fully, it allowed us to take a breather and actually say, what is it that's going to make us distinctive and is going to create a little bit of daylight between us and the competition? So any investment that you hear about uh, our technology platform, the way we actually we actually have an internal CRM system where we actually collaborate, uh, that was truly accelerated. I wouldn't say it was the reason why we started it. It was in place, but we were able to double down in those types of investments. And then combined with the fact that we are private, we actually were able to put the eyes on the broader horizon and not only hire individuals from other shops that helped us accelerate that path, but also double down in those investments for sure. Um, Juan, another thing that I think is very interesting, um, which you know has been, I think, a consequence of of the last sort of three years, has been this ability to kind of work work from anywhere. And and I want to kind of circle back and see, you know, you're in Atlanta, right? Uh, your company is based in uh, you know Toronto. 
you know, typically some somebody would think that maybe you know a company like yours would sort of focus on New York as sort of a as sort of a major power center where you want to locate your executives, but but you're not there. Um, you know, tell us about that and sort of how, you know how that's helped influence not just what what you, what you know you do, but how it's how the organization sort of sees itself as a as as a player, um, a, you know, across this country, but also across the world. So a couple of thoughts there. So one, yes, our headquarters globally are in Toronto. Our U.S. headquarters are actually in Chicago, believe it or not. I happen I happen to sit in Atlanta. Our CEO splits time between Florida and Chicago. Our chief marketing officer is in the West Coast. So I think that speaks a little bit to the ability to do business from anywhere. So and we're full, full believers in that. What I will tell you also is that we're also build believers on relationships and relationships are built in the office. So not only because that's our business, we help our clients rent space and sell a office space, one of the, the end markets that we have. I want people in the office. I'm a strong believer that there's a lot that happens uh, physically. And even though you and I are having a great conversation today, but we know each other, starting this from scratch over Zoom would be would be really, really hard. So. We are trying to get people back to the office. I think internally we're saying, I want you there four days a week. I think that flexibility is good. And we actually have strategies for our clients. And that's one under our consulting line, return to office is one of the services we are providing. And we see, and we believe that uh, for collaboration, for innovation, for thought leadership, you need to be there. And we get a lot of questions from, from CEOs that might be saying, look, I'm not ready to change space. There's no transaction here, guys, but I want your thought partnership around, how do I get my folks here, right? And so there's a lot of work around renovating space, changing configurations and all that. But I, I do believe down the road, we're gonna be paying the fact that we're, we're not out there. I will tell you that what I see here in the Atlanta office, which is the office that I mainly come to is for young folks who need apprenticeship, who need followership, and I see it every day, Brokerage is a relationship business. They need to they need to spend time not only with clients but with their peers, and that's a big push of ours. Yeah, what are you seeing from around the industry? So I, I imagine you know your your folks are dealing with people both on the you know uh, you know tenant side, but also on the landlord side, right? Um, I think there is. Um, there's a bit of a you know disconnect I think still going on in terms of what what some employers want to do versus what they used to do right uh, there's obviously a disconnect between what employees want to do um, and um, I'm just curious you know we, we don't have to analyze kind of you know what what works better I mean every company is going to be slightly different but just in terms of like you know some you know general feelers out there um, you know where is the industry in a in a sense of uh, you know how office is going to be utilized, and maybe some you know trends that you guys are identifying uh, that will really be kind of interesting markers in terms of sort of what what will happen over the next I don't know thirty six months or so, right? Yeah. So so we're to be clear, we're referring exclusively to office. So that's that's where I'll, because we we have a industrial discussion or a retail discussion. So on the office space, here here's where I see our clients behaving. So for the most part, and not to get political, but there's this mix or this forces that are kind of hitting against each other, which is the employer literally trying to get people back to work because of the com components of what I said before, creativity, uh, mentorship, innovation, et cetera. I, I think those roles, if 
if employees had their way, they would have people in the office more often than that's point one. Point two, then you have employees on the other side saying, well, I really loved what I was able to do through COVID. And by the way, there's a great McKinsey study that shows, and there's a huge disconnect, what employees interpret as flexible is literally what I told you. Oh, four days a week in the office, you pick it, right? Vlad, if you want to take your day from home Monday, great. If you want it Thursday, great. If you want it, that's my offer to you as far as flexibility. That's what an employee would, sorry, an employer would determine as flexibility. What an employee wants is being able, and this is going to sound crass, being able to go to the gym at 10 a.m., right? That's that's how wide the expectations are, right? So I hear anecdotes from clients that say to me, listen, part of the challenging I'm having is that I'm talking to my marketing department. I need something done. We are allowing them to stay those functional areas. We're allowing them to stay home. And I ask for a proposal to be returned. And they said, yeah, I'll get back to you after my Pilates class. Well, that kind of work during COVID is not working anymore. So, so that's that's where we are. And I don't think that's going to be fixed soon unless you have strong, call it office managers or, or CEOs that actually mandate it, as you hear Facebook, Googles, and others doing it. I will tell you we've opted for the four days a week, and there's different degrees of adoption. That's that. What that's going to create in, in the office market is a lower occupancy rate, period, full stop. And we see buildings that were designed for, call it 600 people, that now with Flex can actually house 1,800 people, right? Because simply if you do it flex, so the demand is going to be down. Then translate into where we are in different types of buildings. If you are an owner and you're sitting on a class A building properly located with good amenities, close to transportation, I think you're sitting for the most part happy and those will be occupied, right? And I'll give you the example of the building we're in right now and we moved here in in April, this is a 1980s building, Midtown Atlanta, where they invested, the owner invested 27 million bucks to renovate it. And it looks fabulous. And we're here. And literally, I was here when we moved from one office to the other. Absolutely. The fact that the office looks as fun as it is with a coffee shop downstairs, a gym, and we are coming here and we see it. We look at badges. People are here more. So from both an employee perspective, but an owner perspective, if you're sitting in these types of buildings, you are good. Now take the other side of the spectrum. If you're sitting in a class C building that is dated, no amenities, you're dead in the water. That thing is not gonna lease. Occupancy is very, very high. And you, I'll just tell you, you either return the keys and there's a lot of, uh, there's data around the number of buildings that in every city uh, are due from a, from a loan perspective. And I wanna say it's like 20 some percent in Atlanta, for example, in the, over the next three years. So I think you will see a lot of owners be giving the keys back to, to banks if if you're not willing to invest on that class C. But then there's the pickle is really the people that are in the middle, right? So if you're in a building that is properly located, kind of date, dated, and you're not willing uh, to make the investment, that's a true that's a true decision that you have to make as an owner. And we're actually helping. That's a lot of the questions were being asked. Those leases are taking forever. I'd be on the camp on, hey, listen, you have to renovate and invest, or you just have to be willing to take a, a price reduction. That's it. That's that's the pickle. If you ask me, look, my crystal ball is not better than anyone, but I think office is going to suffer for the next 24 to 36 months. Yeah. 
And I would be sort of remiss not to ask this uh, question also. Uh, you're from South America. I'm from Europe. Um, is, is this a U.S. problem? Um, you know, and, and, or, or do you see this you know, happening in other parts of the world also? Um, is it happening in a way somewhere else where maybe there's a better equilibrium? So look, we, I am very familiar with what's happening in Europe. And I'll tell you, it actually went faster and deeper in places like, like the UK. I will also tell you that the silver lining is that starting to recover. And so we're kind of six to eight months behind. But remember, there's a lot of, so by the way, every industry goes through these cycles. So yeah, I saw it in building materials. I see it here. Uh, you have to remember the energy crisis in Europe. You have to not forget about Ukraine. So it, it was a little bit of the perfect storm. Uh, so it's happening all over. And in the US, I will tell you, uh, Yes, COVID had a factor, but now this is not a interest rate problem from my perspective. It is truly a liquidity problem. That's what I hear from, from investors. Uh, I really am on the camp that things will get better uh, on the second half, but this is not only a US, this is not only a US issue by, by no means. Yeah. Is there... Um an opportunity for additional services? Do you think that it might provide, you know, companies like yours an opportunity to, you know, go into areas that maybe you didn't uh, uh, work in before? So will, you know, Avis and Young, and I'm just sort of, you know, picking this out of the air, have like an architecture firm now, you know what I mean? That you can now do things that maybe you didn't do before, maybe, uh, you know, a TI firm, right? Um, and I'm just throwing that out there. I don't know if sort of, uh, you know, vertical integration makes any sense, but um, uh, I am curious sort of how how you guys look 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 at that. I'm just afraid you might be coming after my job, man, because that's exactly what we're doing. No, you're, you're hitting it spot on, right? So go back to what we're aspiring to become and is that full full service place. Now, if you're a CEO, the true question you're asking is, how do I get my employees back to work? What do I need to do? There's no capital to actually relocate. How do I make my current place more appealing? So go, go to the turnkey design build firms. We literally just acquired one, Studio Eagle in the Northeast. They're an Avison Young company now, and that's exactly what they do, right? They do projects. We go all the way from design, architect, project management, and deliver. Uh, and we're truly being super successful in that space. There are many conversations that go around. Again, I'm a CEO. I'm not going to move. Help me reconfigure this space for flex, for being like more flexible to my employees. Absolutely, absolutely happening. Uh, and that's what we're all about right now. All these adjacencies that go around the asset, it's, it's where we're doubling down. And our clients are seeing us way more like that. And, and again, we're starting to talk internally. We're not brokers. We are advisors. Yeah. 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 Um, you mentioned data was one of the areas that you wanted to focus on um, and kind of bringing technology into the organization. Um, there's obviously a lot of hoopla currently around, you know, artificial intelligence and that kind of stuff. We don't need to get into that aspect of it, but just from kind of a data and organization of that information and how it feeds into decision making, right? Um, how is how is that evolving? Do do you do you do you see a sort of a true kind of you know inflection point now that it is more available and and the industry is willing to sort of think about it more? Um, you know, tell us how it's sort of you know moving itself into 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 the industry. Look, absolutely. So I'll give you I'll give you an example. It's a little it's both scary and and exciting, right? So if you 
if you, let's say you are a, an owner of a clinic in Florida and you want to expand, it's a real story. You want to expand. You come to any commercial real estate firm and you say, listen, I'm looking for a clinic. I need 200 beds and I want it in Naples, Florida because it's an aging population and I provide X, Y, and Z types of services to my, to my patients. We go, any, any of my competitors will go into this session with a nice, they do their due diligence, they understand the area, they get comps, they get cap rates, and they understand the opportunity and they go into these meetings saying, hey, Vlad, look, we got you this nice glossy brochure. Let me show you three options that you have. Property A, blah, 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 property B, blah, blah. And that's, that's a typical sales call, right? If you want and you get the assignment and then, then you, you go from there. At Avis and Young, we want to turn that discussion around. It goes back to, in the in the Home Depot example, was how do you help me become next day for my clients? Here, the discussion was, and this is real, hey, why don't you give me the data on your patients? And let me do a little bit of exercise on who is actually using your services. We go through the exercise and we realize that well, you guys are asking your, your patients, your constituents, your stakeholders to drive 30, 40, 50 miles. Are we actually looking at Naples at the right location? I understand that from my perspective. You say, one, it's obvious, it's, it's aging population. Yeah, I, I got it. But when you look at the data, the right answer wasn't Naples. It was Melbourne, uh, Florida. And so then the discussion, it's literally, you see the CEO turn to the real estate guy and say, see, I told you, we were putting the location in the wrong place, the clinic in the wrong place. That is data. That is actually understanding who's actually using your services. Where are they coming from? Where do you actually put the building? If you want to change the nature of your employees at a distribution center, okay, so where is affordable housing? Because a, a warehouse employee who manages a, a lift makes $20 an hour. So where are they coming? Where are their kids going to school? How are they gonna drive? Do they have to pay at all? These are all things that come into the equation, into this tool that I'm happy to talk about. It's called for us Avant. And we actually, it's a drag and drop, amazing discussion around drivers that would actually influence a decision on an asset. But let's remind ourselves that that example of the clinic, the owner is not in the business of real estate. The clinic happens to be the medium by which they operate, but they're in the business of curing patients. They don't care where the clinic is located. And they have to find a partner that says, it's not about the asset. It's about who is going to visit the clinic. It's not about the DC. It's how do I help one deliver next day? And that's all data. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's perfectly clear. Um, Juan, as you look at kind of the, uh, some of the you know trends or things that are going to shape the industry over the next 24, 36 months, and I know this might be a little bit of a, trite question but I, I i i do think you have a perspective that um is you know very broad but i would love to ask you what do you think is going to you know define commercial real estate over the next i don't know couple of years yeah so look i think I, I i have to go by sectors i call it or or kind of yeah sectors so look we very much like and have liked for a while the industrial market. Is it is it hot? It's been hot for a while, but I tell you, maybe I'm biased again because of my buildings at, at Depot and how I interacted with industrial. We like that sector a ton. Uh, we understand where not only the US, but globally, the needs are for 
client proximity and how again go back to that next day that desire for immediacy you need that so we like that sector we like data centers a ton right so a lot of these conversions from strip malls that are trying to be converted into big data centers that's that's going to continue i think retail is going to be a little bit choppy a uh, multifamily we really really like and then office that's that's the challenging one i think i think we're seeing a low i think it could get a little bit worse before it starts to turn around but we see a turnaround some matter of time i think people will recognize that being in an office granted it might look an office might look different than what we see today is key so that's kind of on the occupancy side then as as things take longer to to recover there will continue to be, and we're starting to see it. We're starting to see it, a little bit of uh, repricing, a little price correction. Uh, but that's that's kind of where that's kind of where we are. Look, I love the space. Uh, if you ask me, one of the reasons why I've moved from from consulting to then building products or building materials to real estate is the opportunities here are are huge, right? Uh, and look, I, I continue to be a big fan of the space. And, but it's going to be those that actually understand the little niches are going to win. And then it all has to be about the, how do you get close to your clients and think about this less from a transaction and more from the. What about uh, on the R&D side, uh, you know, also onshoring, manufacturing, I know there were some, you know, federal kind of initiatives in terms of, you know, laws and that kind of stuff being pushed to bring like, you know, chip manufacturing back into the, you know, US, for instance, right? I think there are going to be some winners across the country there. Life science, obviously, is a, is a is a big sector too. And I know this is sort of adjacent to maybe like industrial because it is, it is kind of, you know, similar. Um, in So what, what I'm also asking here is, are, are there other areas, other food groups that you might think are going to um, emerge all of a sudden as sort of, you know, uh, you know, winners over the next couple of years that that maybe were sort of more on the, um, you know, edge of the industry, perhaps, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So that granularity, you mentioned two, which actually are truly both on the industrial side, but all these labs for life sciences, I literally was in Boston yesterday and the day before, that sector is hot and not slowing down, right? Life sciences, just like data centers, those are two where we see a bunch of activities. We continue to say go back to them. So that's and it has a component board the lab side, but also the R and D side, which is absolutely key. And then on the industrial side for all this offshoring, being proximity. If you have good land next to a port where you actually can set up a DC, set up a hub and spoke strategy for again customer uh, proximity. What you see, what Amazon's trying to do with smaller but more dispersed. Uh, hubs that that is absolutely a trend which is why i think we're again buying super low on the industry side even though many people say that's we're past we're past the trough i do believe also that those that have the stomach uh, if you're willing and maybe it's a little early but if you if you give it a few months and you're willing to double down in office it, it will turn around you again if you if you're able to turn a building from B to A or C to A, you'll be fine. It's just a matter of time. And that's that's the stomach component. But offices are not going away from it. Look, we have data around. We have this great uh, tool around 
city vitality, the vitality index, right? We talk about, uh, help me understand, help me measure, have cities come back to pre-pandemic numbers. And so we, we track cell phone data. I will not get into the technicality, but we're able to understand whether Boston is back to pre-pandemic versus Atlanta versus New York. The data shows, and it's fascinating, that people are not going to New York, for example, downtown Manhattan on a Tuesday at 10 a.m., but if you, but there it happens to be a concert in Manhattan at 10 p.m. at night on a Friday, man, that's booming. So the, the takeaway, the insight is it is not about COVID anymore. People are not afraid. People are not, not going to downtowns because they're afraid of getting sick. They're right. doing it because go back to the earlier discussion. They it is very comfortable to stay home. So, but that's one piece. The other one, people are worried a lot about safety. And there's not not to get again political on it, but I think we do have to work on safety of our cities. We know what happens in Baltimore. We know what happens in Chicago. To some extent, what happens in Atlanta. And we start to hear office, start to think about, hey, my downtown, is it empty? Is it not? Is there an opportunity to go more suburban? I think that's another thing to watch. That's just, I, I can't tell you it's a trend, but there's a conversation around, clearly it's not COVID. Why aren't people here? There's a component about uh, safety of our cities. Juan, from a from an industry perspective, are, is is there is there anything anecdotal, anything that you're seeing across the industry that is really interesting that is driving kind of some of the you know vitality going going on across across commercial real estate? Ah, good question. Look, I I think there's two two cool things. People are starting to find ways to reuse on use space. So look, there are buildings that are simply office space not being occupied. We know, for example, in Manhattan, there's a lack of opportunities for apartments and resin. We're starting to see, and we're seeing a, a little bit of those conversions. It's not terribly easy, it just takes money, but conversions from office to resi, and that's starting to be a little bit of uh, old news, but there's a lot of investors looking at that. One of the challenges being, I'll be tell you, and it's, it's interesting, plumbing. So these buildings aren't meant to have five or six bathrooms in a, in a building, they're meant to have one for men, one for women. And so there's there's a lot of the conversion, but that's starting to happen. And given the lack of housing in our urban spaces, that's a cool trend. But also, and this is and this is not only cool, but also inspirational as you think about topics of ESG and sustainability, we're starting to see, and we're working on one very cool one, a, taking decommissioned nuclear plants and turning them into residential spaces, big campuses, typically close, think about it, right? Close to waters uh, where you actually can take a very cool building and make something livable. And these are big buildings that are uh, vacant for a long time. So it's again, sustainable, it's creative. And it, I think the future takes a little bit of that, right? How do we partner with people that are willing to take not only risks, but are seeing things in different ways. And it takes a lot of thought leadership and, and aggressiveness to, to, to get stuff done. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Um, Juan, as we close our conversation, I wanna focus on a couple of maybe, you know, personal questions, if that's okay. Um, one, I would love to hear from you just in terms of like, you know, lessons learned and maybe, you know, some advice to like your, your younger self that, you know, you would, you would, you would give kind of, you know, things you wish you knew back then that uh, you you know about sort of the industry and yourself now? Yeah, so so first of all, I would say this is definitely a relationship business. 
But then I think we've over the years over indexed on that. I would tell you that relationships open doors, opens door, but we need to be, we need to know something about something. And that's where the whole data uh, comes into play. I think that's one. I think for leaders, I think particularly in this business, we've overlooked the power of diversity, candidly. And I think from a diversity of thought, diversity of uh, backgrounds, gender, et cetera, ethnicity, being able to emulate what your clients are, it's absolutely key and gives you a, a clear advantage. We're making a very concerted effort in that front. In this industry, Vlad, and you know it, typically was reserved for a affluent ma white males, candidly, right? That would jump into this business uh, because their families would have great relationships. And that was a, a way, great way to start because you would bring clients. And for me, candidly, I'll, I'll tell you, when I graduated Kellogg, this would have never been a place that I would look because it was very hard for me to be successful. So one of the things that we're trying to do at Edison Young is starting a junior broker program that is geared towards diversity, right? And it's funny how little things like having a leader with an accent like me, what ha that has done, right? We now have in every, in every city that you would expect to have diversity, Miami, LA, Atlanta, right? There's no reason why we can't have successful brokers that are not the traditional white male. Uh, I think that's a lesson for leaders that I wish the industry had started earlier. Uh, but again, it's not too late to, to go to it. Excellent. Juan, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. This was wonderful and uh, always glad to you know see another classmate from, from time to time. Vlad, great. Thank you very much. Thank you to your audience and mm -hmm. I look forward to the next one. That was another episode of the Real Perspectives podcast, and we thank you for taking the time to listen to it. Conversations like these help us comprehend our evolving industry better and hopefully provide a perspective that helps you understand the dynamics of commercial real estate. If you like this episode, please subscribe to our show and tell your colleagues about it. That is the best way to spread the news and help us remain relevant across the industry. Cheers. Cheers.